We have this process in the onboarding plan development that we call ingest, and that's actually how we get information from an engineering manager to have Eddie build the onboarding plan automatically. And so they actually have to complete, you know, in that MVP, we had them complete basically a 70 question survey monkey survey. And most of it was multiple choice and true false. And so it was taking way longer for people to actually fill that out than we had anticipated and we hoped. And it was a very friction-filled experience. And so we realized with that customer feedback that this was the first thing that needed to change. Hi, my name is Kristen Buchanan, and I am the founder and CEO of Edify. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries, who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Kristen Buchanan built an AI platform enabling engineers to up-level their team performance. All this and more on Code Story. Kristen Buchanan lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband, cats, and dog. She went to school for museum education with a minor in art history. Note the non-technical background. She was a kid who loved archaeology and anthropology and thought she was going to be spending her time in museums. Personally, she loves teaching and sharing new things with people, yet never wanted to be a teacher. Her hobbies center around learning new things and being outside. She loves to read and used to dig into the relics in the library stacks at her school. An interesting fact, when studying the art of wax painting in an old Latin book, she found a note that someone had passed their friend in Latin class from the 1950s. She's also a big DIYer and gardener, enjoying the engineering in both of these things. In 2015, she started her own business to offer learning and development services and specializing in software engineering onboarding. She was challenged by a mentor to turn this into a software solution. And after some reflection time, she decided to do just that. This is the creation story of Edify. Edify is an AI platform that enables engineering teams to be their highest performing team self. And we do that through a number of different ways. We currently do that through our first product called Eddie. And Eddie is an onboarding bot that allows an engineering manager to build a technical specific to their team onboarding plan and deploy that automatically to their new hires. And Eddie will actually help support that new hire for their first 30 days, giving them tasks, activities, people to meet, and actually checking back in with them every day and helping them get unblocked, learn new things, get connected to the right people. And we are expanding that out into documentation and knowledge findability, but also updating. So keeping your documents maintained and easy to access and easy to understand. So that's what Edify is today. And I would say that, you know, from a vision perspective, we want to be what we call the operating system of high performing engineering teams, just in the same way that you basically don't put your code anywhere except for GitHub or maybe GitLab. Um, we want every high performing engineering team to be using Edify to run a more inclusive, uh, high performing, high output engineering process. 
I actually started my first company back in 2014. So long story short, I went, you know, I started in museums. Uh, I was a museum educator for a while, eventually went into nonprofit education program design and was writing curriculum and teaching. And then eventually ended up actually at a web development firm. And I was doing something I probably had no business doing. I was in business development, which is really a fancy word for sales. Our company built these really complex data display handling websites uh, on Drupal, and they were for a lot of government agencies and healthcare and universities and things like that. And so it was my job to find those customers and sell them and then write the proposal and then you know work with the engineering team to actually get that project built. I noticed as I was bringing in new projects to the business that there was this big gap between how the engineers understood what the customer needed and how the customer even articulated what they needed technically. And so while I wasn't technical, I, I did not know how to code at the time, I really felt like this was just an education problem that I could educate our engineers on how to ask better questions of their customers and how to help our customers actually explain what they needed. So I started teaching some workshops and that ended up getting really popular. At the same time, I was not loving that work environment. I felt like it was a pretty toxic place. People were kind of yelling at each other over process issues and I was getting migraines all the time. In mid 2014, I decided, you know, I'm going to start my own business. I don't really know what it's going to be and eventually kind of settled on education design and um, quit that job in early 2015. And so that process uh, led me on kind of this journey of offering learning and development services to mostly tech companies. And over time, actually fairly quickly, I ended up specializing in software engineering onboarding and realized that nobody really had cracked this nut and there were these you know, the, the status quo was basically a really long outdated checklist that had to be updated every time a new hire started. And so I noticed all of these frustrating problems with that way of onboarding new hires and started to build my sort of own intellectual property and process about how to do that quickly. And over time, it actually had these really great effects. We were seeing that new hires were getting up to speed, you know, two to three times faster with Edify, you know, my, my programs uh, rather than no onboarding. Um, and so we were seeing these exciting results. In 2018, a mentor of mine, uh, Luke Kniss, who was the founder of Puppet and now Clickety, he challenged me to think about, you know, this is repetitive, right? You're going to lots of different customers, helping them with the same problem. You know, that sounds like a software issue. And I kind of ignored him because I was happy with my business. It was making money. And then I actually started to get really burnt out of my own business in 2019. And so I went on a sabbatical. I, I was privileged to be able to do that and started to think like, maybe Luke was right. What can I, what can I do here? Um, and when I got back from that, I had a bunch of sketches that I started to show to my old customers and basically said to them, what would it be like if you had me on demand to help you with everything that you needed, but you didn't have to pay for me like a consultant? They kind of said, well, yeah, there doesn't seem to be anything bad about that. We like working with you. From that point, I tapped our now director of product, Jamie, and I asked her to basically product manage our MVP and we worked very quickly to put together a sort of Google style design sprint. We validated some of our ideas, um, we trashed some of the other ideas um, and then we got started building a really duct taped MVP last year. Let's dive into the MVP. Let's dive into that MVP you mentioned. Tell me about it and how long it took to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. This process was really interesting. Jamie and I, uh, we kind of had this 
big whiteboard. I, I put together a giant list of everything that I wanted the product to do start to finish. I handed her a marker, uh, you know, an Expo marker and said, okay, erase 75% of these things. And I'm pretty sure that she erased about 85%. Um, and so I was sort of emotionally already prepared to let go of a lot of my favorite features. But then she pulled even more of them, um, and I was a little sad about that. But it was a really good moment as a founder to say, what is actually feasible in a short period of time? Because my sort of self-imposed mandate, also because I was bootstrapping at the time and, and pulling you know, my revenue from my old business and actually had taken out some loans as well to support this new business, I said, you know, we have to have something shipped in three months. And so we finally kind of selected a couple of contractors to help us and we used a low code tool. We actually settled on FlowXO, but we even created, even before actually doing any code writing, we actually had, I would say like early, early MVPs. We had um, a bot society model that we had built out of a Figma prototype. Uh, bot society allowed you to basically mimic how a bot would work and you could kind of type into it and was essentially no code. Um, and we prototyped that and shared it with customers and got feedback. And then we actually pretended to have Jamie be a bot. So Jamie actually was embedded in one of our early customers' Slack environments and pretended to be a bot. The poor thing actually had to manage time zones from Belfast and LA and New York. So she was up a lot during that two week experiment, but it was amazing. Actually, new hires didn't know that it was a real person. And so they actually treated it like, you know, treated that user as a bot. And so it gave us real data about whether or not people were gonna respond because that was actually an early problem with our thesis um, that we were worried about, which was, you know, will people interact, will engineers interact with a bot or do they wanna interact with a person? And we actually found that they, they will interact with the bot and, uh, actually can enjoy it if it's well designed. So those were our earliest, earliest iterations. And then we built the sort of half code, half flow XO version, shipped that out. It took about three and a half months, which was a little bit slower than we had anticipated, but we ran into some hiccups as it always happens with software development. But we got it out to a group of beta customers and got them onboarding new hires in August of last year. With any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs right around feature cut or technical debt. You mentioned the low-code solution, which kind of, you know, is more workflow with a little bit of code here and there, um, more configuration. Tell me about some of those decisions that you made in the short term and trade-offs and how you coped with them. So I guess I'll start with sort of my long-lived personal philosophy about these sorts of things, which is that... Nothing matters. The quality of the code doesn't matter. The actual meat behind the, the UI of the product doesn't actually matter if you can't sell it and users don't like it. I see a lot of people spend a lot of time kind of underground working on their product to make it perfect and then they push it out and they don't realize that that's just a very, you know, waterfall, you know, you pretend like you're being agile, but you're, you're really not and you don't actually get any real feedback on it. And then when you push it out to customers, if they don't like it, you've spent all this time and now you have to kind of rip that up. Part B of that, you just have to give into the reality that as an early stage startup, the original code that you write is unlikely to be the code that you keep as you get successful and scale your company. And so you just have to give into that sort of chaos of this code is not perfect. It's not the most beautiful, elegant code. And that's not, I think it hurts engineers sometimes. I think it really feels 
like emotionally taxing. And I just decided that that was going to be our philosophy and we were going to get real comfortable with getting things basically to this 75% cooked methodology um, or, or point. And so that was the sort of guiding principle set that Jamie and I went off into the world with when we were building this MVP. And we did vet a number of different bot platforms and, you know, different low code frameworks. And I will say, you know, I think there's a lot of promise in low code, no code, and also they're not everything and they're not perfect. And so we did have to have, you know, some custom development done to, to get our product to where we wanted it to be. I do think that you can use low code and no code tools to really get a first iteration out there, but you also don't want to rely too heavily on too many third party applications if you're building out your core product, which, you know, it's interesting. I actually was just reading this past weekend, Jeff Lawson's new book. Jeff is the founder and CEO of Twilio. And he kind of talks about that theory of deciding what are you going to build versus what are you going to buy? And we chose to build the core functionality of our product and sort of buy the integrations and buy the kind of way that it functions outside of the core, the defensible part of our startup. So that's kind of how we approach that MVP. That's a fantastic approach, and it gives you the opportunity to focus on building what is core to your offering. And it also makes a ton of sense that it's really hard for engineers. Uh, being an engineer myself, it's really difficult sometimes to let go of, of your baby that you made, right? But it's so important, and when engineers can realize that, it's, it's, a, it's a critical skill from a professional standpoint. Okay, so you got your MVP created, you got it out to a pilot group, you're getting some traction. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And, you know, I'm interested in how you built your roadmap and figured out, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. This kind of ties into the vision, you know, where we want to see ourselves. And we started to think about, you know, let's say after August of, of 2020, I started to think, okay, what's the next most important problem that we're gonna to need to solve for our customers? And we we decided, you know, we're gonna be more than onboarding. We actually don't think about onboarding and the product that we have today as a standalone product. We think about it as actually a foundational data model for the team that's using the product. There are gonna be other components and other features that layer on top of the onboarding experience inside of Eddy. And so we think of onboarding as this integral component of understanding how a team is sharing information uh, and using that information to become more and more high performing. Within that lens, that really allowed us to think about, you know, what are the, the next painful problems that our customers experience? And so what we did know uh, from launching that beta, if you will, to that, that pilot group was some of our initial low code ways of solving problems just weren't cutting it. So as an example, we have this process in the, the onboarding plan development that we call ingest internally. And that's actually how we get information from an engineering manager to have Eddie build the onboarding plan automatically. And so they actually have to complete, you know, in that MVP, we had them complete basically a 70 question survey monkey survey. And most of it was multiple choice and true false. And it was designed to, to have you just drop in, you know, links to Confluence or uh, README or GitHub repo. And so it was taking way longer for people to actually fill that out than we had anticipated and we hoped. And we actually had some interesting kind of customer behavior 
And it was a very friction-filled experience. And so we realized with that customer feedback that this was the first thing that needed to change. And so we adapted that into eventually not a survey model and into a web UI. And previously we didn't have any web UI. We were actually kind of headless and lived entirely inside of Slack. And so that was kind of the first thing that we did after we launched and, and got some early feedback. And that's kind of how we've continued to be is, you know, constantly asking our customers. We look at their behavior in the product very frequently. And we ask, you know, what's painful about this? Why would you choose not to use this if you didn't like our vision and didn't want to support Edify? I think that's another kind of component. If I if I can add another sort of philosophy is be always asking your customers what they're feeling. Because again, it doesn't really matter what your vision is as the founder. If your customer is experiencing it poorly or isn't any, getting any value out of it. And so that that's sort of how we progressed and, and we continue to do that today for new features. Let's switch over to team. So how did you go about building your team and, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Team is really important at Edify and we have spent a lot of time um, probably more time than most early stage startups investing in our values and what we call operating principles. And those are sort of ways that we live our values and our interview process itself, along with those job descriptions for open roles. I think it's important to kind of normalize this. I actually kind of had two mishires in the summer of 2020. And I won't go into extreme detail with it, but it ended up being that I, I didn't put people, these two people through a rigorous enough hiring process, kind of didn't see around some corners and then realized when the rubber hit the road, you know, this is not a good fit for us for any, you know, for a number of different reasons, either values wise or matching to the vision or making sure that they actually were able to run at the pace of a startup like Edify. That was a painful experience. It was difficult. You know, two engineers that we had on staff, most both of them were part-time. One of them actually had been one of the contractors. And so we were a very small kind of ragtag team in 2020. And nobody was really working, except for me and Jamie, nobody was really working full-time. As we started to realize, you know, our funding is gonna come through from our fundraise, our seed raise. Then we put together a CTO job description. We turned those two part-time people uh, into full-time staff and we made sure that everybody got a chance to interview our CTO and make sure that this is a good fit both from a technical standpoint and an ad on our culture meaning that this person that we were hiring would actually bring new things and both challenge our assumptions about our product and our company but also support us and, and help us move more quickly. And since that point, we hired, you know, we hired Kate as our CTO. She started at the beginning of January, and that meant our engineering team was three people. About three weeks ago, we added another engineer, a mid-level engineer, and uh, did the same sort of open process about hiring him. Um, and now we're hiring another engineer. And so for us, it's been continuous improvement and looking at what parts of our interview process can we adjust to go faster, but also go deeper with the candidate and make sure that this is both an environment that they're gonna thrive in and enjoy, and that this is the right person for us, that they uphold our values and they see our vision and they really co-sign on what we're trying to do. Well, let's flip to scalability a little bit. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow? 
I really appreciate this question. And I think it goes back to something I was saying earlier about, you know, the early decisions that you make technically are often going to get unwound and redone. To me, there's inherent rework and your goal is to try to minimize that rework, but maximize the outcomes of the work that you are doing, not output. So we care less about the actual amount of code or the way it was written than does it work? Does it do what it was supposed to? And was it shipped quickly enough that we could get feedback and move forward more quickly? From that perspective, you know, we, we brought that into our choices of the low code frameworks that we used in the summer of last year. And we also knew that in order to meet our deadline and with the, the constraints that we had, you know, didn't have the ability to pay someone full time to build this out. I didn't have a CTO co-founder. My programming ability is very limited. We decided, okay, this is going to be a trade-off that we may not be able to build something that could easily handle, you know, a thousand or more people at the same time trying to run this bot but we're probably not going to have a thousand customers to begin with. We just want to start with 10 and then 20 and then 30. It actually ended up being really good because we were able to find not just basic bugs in how things worked, but we were able to find like, oh, this is a logic flaw and we need to fix this. Or we didn't understand this about customer behavior and we need to fix that. We were able to get that data faster than if we had spent that time trying to build the most perfect, most scalable system. Um, and that's constantly the balance that I give back to uh, or encourage my CTO, Kate, to think about is, you know, how do you move quickly while also not creating too much technical debt, but technical debt that is, you know, we're willing to say outsource maybe to uh, external contractors or technical debt that would make a good um, sort of hack day project um, or 20% time project. So as you step out on the balcony, and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I am really proud of the team that we have assembled. I am proud of how diverse the team is. I'm pretty sure that every one of us is coming from a non-traditionally technical pathway. Um, a lot of us have sort of liberal arts degrees, some don't have degrees at all. Some are coming from previous careers and they switched into coding. Um, there's just a lot of different ways that people are joining Edify and they bring a lot of their own experience that adds a lot to our product and to our culture and how we interact with customers. My perspective is that if you have the right people who care about what you're doing and care about your customer, and they have the right motivation, you can teach them any of the technology that you need. You do at some point, you know, sometimes need to hire people who know what they're doing so that they can move ahead, but they don't have to be the Google engineer who's been at Google for 10 years or, you know, somebody who has been in startups for a really long time. I actually think of our whole Edify team as a team of sort of underdogs and that actually that's some of thing, something that makes us really special is that we're approaching these problems in technology at a, at a meta level, building inclusive, high-performing teams from a non-engineering perspective and bringing our, our own experiences into that and, and joining that with engineering best practices and with what our customers say. And I think that's a really novel perspective and we couldn't do that without the team. Let's flip the script a little bit. 
Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. One of the mistakes that we made um, actually in, in this past quarter, first quarter of this year, was not doing the right research on the platform that we wanted to move to. So basically just to set the scene, we had built our uh, low code bot on a tool called FlowXO, which was an excellent tool for the purposes of we, that we needed it for, but we were actually starting to outgrow it. So that goes back to your question on scale. We were outgrowing its capabilities and we were outgrowing what we needed it to do. And we realized also that we needed to insource our own core functionality of the product. So it was time to kind of move to a different way of way of looking at the product. And we were also trying to bring in natural language processing so that Eddie could understand more creative questions and, and serve up better information. We settled on a tool called NLX, which we love, but is also sort of a newish tool. Um, and that's kind of both the exciting and challenging thing about working in dev tools right now is that there are so many new things that are awesome coming on the market. And there are also startups just like you or us. Um, and so I don't think that we did the right kind of research and we, we didn't necessarily interrogate some of our choices the way that we needed to. And then when we had to start making some changes to the bot, we actually realized that we weren't going to meet our original launch timeline if we were going to include some of that migration. You know, that was a mistake. We had talked to our investors, we had talked to our beta customers about being able to launch publicly right after Q1 of this year, and we weren't able to meet that. And so it's kind of a dual, you know, we didn't, we sort of failed on one level and then made some mistakes that contributed to that failure on the other level. Well, you, you touched on this a bit when you were describing the company and about the vision of where you want to go. Um, but let's quantify that a little more. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? The, the vision hinges on this question, which is, why are we not using DevOps principles in our engineering team management? I've wondered this for the past six years. Why are we seeing such new, interesting innovations around how we basically how we ship better products and how we make them more stable and more reliable and how we learn as teams on the product side? Why can't we use those principles of things like automation and continuous improvement, continuous integration, testing, collaboration, things like that? Why aren't we using that in team management? Because if you look at the market right now, it's just like, oh, well, here's another one on one bot that will help managers have better one-on-ones. Well, okay, that's getting somewhere, but it's not really getting at the heart of it. And again, you know, I think Edify in our core, we are looking, we're trying to look at the whole system of, of engineering teams. And so taking this question as motivation um, and, and to try to solve this challenge that we see happening in, in engineering teams, we started to say, okay, where is the friction in an engineering team? And if you look at the life cycle of an engineer, so from recruiting into onboarding, into continuous learning and professional development, into say performance management and review cycle, and even into offboarding when somebody's either leaving a team or leaving a whole company, there are a lot of points of friction. And those points of friction are usually centered around where data or information is either being ingested or created and sent out. And so there's a lot of uh, transacting of data in each of those parts of an employee lifecycle within a team. 
I think a lot of engineering teams think that all the people stuff in the team just has to suck, that that's just the way that it is, and it always isn't great. Interviews are always hard. Preparing for interviews are hard. Onboarding people is hard. And I don't believe that. I think you know there's a future where engineering teams are allowed to work on their kind of favorite things, their highest and best use, things that they want to be working on creatively and, and focus on solving those problems. And then there is business software that is supporting the sort of seamless flow of that team. And that's what Edify wants to be. We're imagining features like the ability for Eddie, our bot, to notice when, say, there are a lot of queries about a particular topic and there's no documentation or no subject matter owner at the team who is solving that. So let's say, for example, that Eddie notices 10 times this month, people have been querying about Kubernetes and there's nobody in the team, uh, maybe we're, we're not using Kubernetes right now, nobody in the team who has this expertise the bot might be able to go to the manager and say, hey, Noah, we're seeing this volume of queries. Do you think you need to hire someone with this competency? Here's a few job descriptions I scraped from the internet to help you get this ready. Okay, you're ready to hire. Let me send this job to your applicant tracking system and make this really seamless for you. Or even you know, a time when the bot could say, all right, here's your job description and we're going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and prepare your existing engineers on how to ask these interview questions. So we want basically to take all of that friction and non-engineering work and make it a lot easier for teams. So we're thinking about ways to do that and one of the ways that we keep validating whether these are the right problems to be solving for engineering teams is we keep doing these design sprints and we're very committed to customer discovery so we're bringing them into conversations every single week to tell us what they don't like about that thesis, what works about it, what do they get excited about. You know, it sounds like a really weird problem to get excited about, but I will tell you that I think every company is going to become at minimum a digital company and most likely a software company of some variety. I think if we want to build the best products in the world, both physical and digital, we need to consider how are we building the teams that build those products? And are the people that work in those teams happy? Are they enjoying their jobs? Are they productive? Are they getting self-actualized? And are they doing this in a psychologically safe environment where they can really be them, their best self? And that's where I get a lot of my ex excitement from is thinking about the future of better products in the world. I think it it makes sense that that there's going to be a lot of success with the team you've built because of their non-traditional path to an engineering company, right? You can bring these views of, you know, not just coding, not just computer science, kind of the way we've always done it and look at things in a different way. I know I've experienced that from my team of non-traditional engineer hiring and it's been incredibly valuable for creating a product that that serves in a, in a very different and better way. Let's imagine that you had a really, really smart team of engineers and they all graduated from Stanford's computer science program. It's likely that they're all gonna think fairly similarly and come from pretty similar socioeconomic backgrounds. And you just won't get the creativity that I think you can get with a, with a cross-functional team from a diverse background. Well, let's switch to you, Kristen. Who influences the way that you work? You know, a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. There's a couple of different names and, and people that come to mind. I think 
Um, I really look up to my mentor, uh, Luke Canise, from a candor perspective. He has always been really an inspiration to me on how open and honest he is about what he's learned and what he wishes he did differently in some places. Um, I also think about, I've never met him, but the CTO of Calm, Will Larson, um, I've really always enjoyed his writing and I think he thinks about engineering in a really evolved, progressive and modern way. Um, and I also think about, you know, the, the women, you know, often kind of as a group, the women in technology who have gone before me to, to make it possible for us to even build some of this tech. Um, so those are kind of some of my influences as well. I think I also do a lot of reading um, as one does on just various corners of the internet. And I love um, first round reviews. Uh, blog. I think that there's an excellent set of kind of other leaders talking about their own experiences. Um, and I was really honored and blessed to be part of Techstars Seattle this past cohort. And just the, the people that we met there with people like the CEO and founder of Remitly and Outreach, DigitalOcean, people who just um, have been there, done that, they did the hard thing and they are alive and they loved it and, and they can talk a little bit about some of their own failures and some of the things they wish they had done differently. And I think for me as a founder, that's the most valuable part is actually hearing how did you get to some successful point and how did you get to some failure point and how did you respond because of that? Well, we talked about mistakes, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I actually think that I would have pushed us to not, there was a period of time, say from February to late March where, so about a month and a half, two months where Jamie and I kind of were getting freaked out about working with contractors. And we were worried about like, is this person going to be the right pick? Are they too expensive? Um, you know, is it going to be the right time? And I wish that we would have just hired a couple of code school grads and started working, to be honest. And I think we, we still came out with an excellent MVP and it did what we it needed to do. But I think the faster you can get things out, and I've talked about this a couple times today, the faster you can get things out, you can, the, the faster you learn from customers. And if I had it to do over again, I would just have moved us quickly and, and actually taken more of a risk. Um, because, you know, I, I have a huge place in my heart for code school grads because often they're not afraid to just start trying something, to just start playing with it. And then the more senior you go as an engineer, the more knowledge you have, which can produce this sort of curse of knowledge moment where um, you're second guessing things and you're actually thinking like, well, is this the best way to do it? Is this the most scalable way to do it? Not, and you're, and you're not indexing for, is this the fastest way to get the outcome that my customer needs? Well, last question, Kristen. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I would be like, well, how long is the plane ride? Um, is it a 25 minute to Seattle or is it a five hour to the East Coast? I think first I would ask them, have you sold this? Have you pitched this to a customer? 
And then, you know, there's sort of a, a decision tree that I would go through then, right? Is, you know, if yes, if you have pitched it, okay, what did you learn? Um, and are you really listening to them? Um, and are you moving the company in the direction of what your customer needs? Uh, and if no, I would be like, well, you need to pitch it. So either pitch it to me right now if I'm your potential customer or tell me who you're gonna pitch it to in the next 24 hours. Um, I am very much sort of a bias for action person and I have very, very low tolerance for people sitting on something and just thinking about it. Like just get it out there. It really irritates me when people um, kind of twiddle their thumbs or sit on their hands about it. It's like, no, just get this out there. Try uh, to get it beaten up, frankly. You know, I did this with my pitch deck uh, when I was fundraising or before I started fundraising formally last year where I sent it to all the people that I respect the most in my world and um, said like, redline the crap out of this, frankly. You know, make it, be really honest with me about what's not good here. And you have to do that with your product too. Absolutely, that's great advice. Well, Kristen, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Edify. Absolutely. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks for having me, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.